Today, if you've got a Bible with you, we're continuing our Ephesians series. We're in part three today, but I want to start with something really quite cheery. Uh, it says, uh, this guy speaking, it says, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Anyone know where that comes from? Shakespeare. That's Macbeth. That's Macbeth in terms of uh, trying to get to grips with what's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of all of history? I don't know how you would answer that question. What's the, the meaning? What's the purpose of history? If you, if you had to fill in a sentence, the meaning of history, the, me- the purpose of the world is what you would put. I'm guessing if you're a Christian here today, you're probably not going to agree with Macbeth, although you may agree there's a number of idiots involved, but you wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. You'd probably say it's something to do with God or Christ all in all or God's glory or something like that. You might not be a Christian and you might say, well, to be honest, I kind of agree with Macbeth. It's all a little bit random, pointless, meaningless. Or if often non-Christians also would kind of say, well, it's not random and it's not pointless and it's not meaningless. The meaning is the shared common humanity that we have. And it's a, a journey of self-discovery of how things get better and better and better. And this scientific discovery means that we'll get to a place at some point in the future where there'll be no more disease. And we'll get to the place at some point in the future where people have learned not to kind of try and kill one another or, or hurt one another. There'll be no more wars. There'll be no more trial and pain and difficulty. Maybe that's kind of what people think. But today we're going to be in the book of Ephesians and we're looking at where Paul gives God's answer as to the purpose of the world and of all of history. And so we're going to look at chapter 1 verses 3 through to 14 and uh, we're going to focus particularly in on verses 7 to 11. This is what Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in the counsel of his will, so that we first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee until we acquire possession to the praise of his glory. Are we good to keep with this or should I move to the other one? Wow. Thanks. Wow, what a passage. I read the whole thing because actually in the Greek, that's one long verse. It's one long thing. We, because most people in this day and age don't speak in 202 word sentences, we've broken it up into little bits. And so today we're going to focus in on, on verses 7 to 10. But really, this is, this is a, a massively huge shaping um, verse, passage of scripture. And, it, and it's huge and it's a go-to verse for so many of us because it's full of amazing, lovely, wonderful things. It says, I am blessed. I am ch- 
chosen. I am adopted. I am loved. And it's, and it's, it's a really kind of nice, comforting, warm bit of scripture. And yet, actually, it's way bigger than just about me and my blessing and my adoption and my salvation and my security. A a few weeks ago, as we kicked off this series, I talked about the fact that so many of us view everything through the terms of me. We kind of, we wouldn't be so arrogant as to say this out loud, but we kind of do really believe that the universe revolves around me. I'm the center of the story. The purpose of history, the center of history has got to this point, and I'm going to see it all. It's all going to be wonderful. And we kind of view things through uh, our own lens, how things affect us, me and my walk with Jesus. And as I talked about a few weeks ago, this book of Ephesians is about the church. So this whole passage is is about the church and it, it reveals something. It's not about you and about me. It's about us together. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are blessed. We are those who are loved. We are those who have been set aside before the foundation of the world began for a purpose. And it's this passage that gives us As a church, a local church together, a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. It's what gives us courage and boldness to say, hey, we're part of God's eternal purposes and his plans. And and this is what we're about. And this, this passage reveals to us that the earth and the purpose of history is not random. It's not meaningless. It's not kind of, well, it's just your choices that determine what happens in the end. There is a point. There is a plan. It says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What it means is that Paul is saying in Christ, in Jesus, God has put forward Jesus as a way of saying that this is what the purpose of all of history is about. He has set forth in Christ his plan for the fullness of time. In other words, we know where history is going. Paul's saying there was a time when we didn't, when it was all a a bit of a mystery. Before you became a Christian, there was this moment you go, well, I think it might be about this, it might be about that. If we stopped now and went down onto the high street, what's the purpose of history? What's the point of it all? You'd get all sorts of different answers. Well, it might be this, but who can really tell? Might be that, but I'm not sure. It is for them and it is for them. No, when God revealed this mystery to us, when he rescued us, when he called us as his own, when he adopted us into his family, he reveals to us the mystery of what this is all about. And in Jesus Christ, we see that he is the plan for the fullness of time. This, this passage has the word purpose in it lots of times. And in verse 11, it's, it's used in the sense of blueprint. This is Paul saying there is a, a plan, a blueprint for the world. There is a purpose for all of history. There's a destination. There was a starting point when God created everything, and there is an end point. And it's, it's not random. It's not pointless or meaningless. There is a plan. And verse 10 gives us the exact answer of what the plan is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. That's the plan. What a breathtaking, huge, grand plan. It's about uniting all things in him, all the things in heaven, all the things in earth. That's what his plan is in Jesus. So everything that is currently fractured and broken and in a mess is going to be found, perfected and united in Christ. Every different tribe and tongue, every different race of people group from around the world who currently right now, there is an element of which kind of come together, but pretty much set apart. There's a day coming when there will be no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, no slave nor free, me united together, one in Christ. This is God's plan for the fullness of time. He's going to unite everything together in heaven and earth. And quite clearly, we're not there yet. 
And so we're in this process of knowing that that's our destiny. And so everything that we give ourselves to, that's the destination where we arrive. Everything that we're involved in, that's why we do what we do. Because that's where we're heading. It's why we pour our lives out. Because we have an end goal, a purpose, a plan. That's the story that we have. The uniting of things in heaven and on earth. And lots of people have all sorts of different ideas about what actually mean by heavens and earth. So there are some people who kind of think, well, heaven and earth is, is one and the same. They're actually the same thing. It's sort of like new age spirituality. If you end up going to like Waterstones and you look in the philosophy or the religion bit, you will find lots of these books. We're all divine. We're all gods and goddesses. We're all, you're all pretty princess, Tim, and all that kind of stuff. We're all, it's all one. There is no separation between the earthly and the divine. We're all one. It's all a bit, ooh. Now, apart from the fact that it's a little bit odd, there's all sorts of problems with that, not least, like, how do you explain, like, evil and suffering? Because if we're all divine and we're all gods and goddesses, where do all these problems come from? Why is there all this pain and whatever in the world? But that's one view. It's all united together. Then there's the opposite view. Heaven and earth are two distinct and separate things, Then they never touch at all. Heaven is where God exists. It's his realm, it's, it's the divine thing, and earth is where man exists, and the two don't come into contact. So God, if you believe in God, might have created earth, but he dwells in his heavenly realms, and he stays over there, and, and man stays in his earth realms, and he's over there. And so there's two responses to that. One is you kind of think that, uh, that uh, heaven is terrible. Earth is wonderful, and heaven is terrible. Think, well, I don't want anything to do with God. The whole notion of it sounds, he's probably not real anyway, but even if he is not, I'm going to be really angry about it. I don't want anything to do with that. And earth is the place where I want to be and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we might die. But this is where I want to stay. I don't want anything to do with that. Or if you think they're distinct, and sadly a lot of Christians fall into this camp, you think, well, earth is a terrible place that we need to escape from and heaven is a wonderful place that we need to escape to. And so we spend our entire life trying to get away from this to that. And we view them as these two distinct places. Well, everything might be terrible here, but praise God, one day everything will be amazing there. And I'll escape all of this. Here's what the Bible actually says about heaven and earth. Heaven's not some distinct separate place up there on the clouds where we're going to get to and, and float away somewhere. Heaven, biblically speaking, refers to God's space. It refers to God's realm, where he's the king, where he's in charge, where his rule is undisputed and everyone is submitted to it and it's all gloriously perfect because there is nothing but perfection there in God's heavenly realm. And earth is man's space, and the bi- which is obviously not perfect and everything doesn't go all right. And the biblical picture, and this is a bit tricky with this, Mike, but the biblical picture is that these things overlap. Heaven, earth overlap like that and we find ourselves right now those who are in Christ those who are Christians the church we live in this in-between bit between the now and the not yet so we're in the world but not of the world and when it's Ephesians he talks about we're seated in heavenly places in heavenly realms it doesn't mean we're floating around on the clouds somewhere it means we live in this bit under the kingly rule of Jesus right here right now where he's in charge and we've submitted to him that's what it means to be in the heavenly realms it's his place his authority and yet quite clearly we still live in this world and so we live in this overlapping space right here 
here. And all of creation, all of history, the journey of it is bringing these two things, that the fullness of time, they're completely united in Christ, where everyone will submit to him, where everyone will bow their knee before him, where there is no more pain and no more sickness, because the, thing, the old things have gone and faded away, and behold, the new things have come. There is a new heavens and a new earth. And right now, that's where we, the church, the people of God, live. We're both simultaneously in this world that hasn't yet fully submitted to Christ, and we're living in heavenly places because we have and we live with that tension in that middle bit the now and the not yet and when you understand that and you see that what's coming is coming together like that you understand that there is a day coming when that is going to happen we're not going to escape this earth there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and we're all going to fall under the authority of Jesus where every knee will bow every tongue will confess every heart will adore him there is a day coming when everything will be united in him under his lordship under his rule and under his reign then when you get that things begin to change And the Bible tells us that that day when it's united is so glorious that we're not even going to be able to imagine what it's going to be like. And I don't know about you, but here's the thing with that. I can imagine an awful lot. I really can. I can imagine an awful lot. My brain does amazing, wonderful things. I'm kind of like, wow, I can imagine how just amazing it is. And the Bible says you can't even begin to get close to imagining. How glorious is something that I can think of something so amazing And it says, my brain, my tiny little brain has not even begun to grasp just how glorious. That's how remarkable and amazing it is. That's the story that we're in. That's the narrative. That's the blueprint. That's the plan. That's where everything is heading. And if you're a Christian here today, then you are part of that plan. That's the purpose of Ephesians 1. I was going to do a dance and everything. It just didn't work with with it. (laughs) That's the whole purpose of Ephesians 1. That is what it's telling us about. This is what Paul wants us to know. If you're a Christian here today, then you have been blessed, you've been chosen, you have been adopted, you have been, uh, you've been set apart, you've been called from before the foundation of the world. And then we land at verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And this is so important. We can often hear words like, you've been redeemed, we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Someone might pray that and you think, okay. I know that's Christian because I've heard others say it, but it's a little bit weird. But this is the key thing. You see, redemption is at the very center of getting your head around and beginning to understand where history is going. Redemption is at the very core of your purpose, of knowing that you're part of the plan. We can so quickly pass over these words, just throw them out there. Thank you, Lord, that I've been redeemed, that we miss the depth and the richness and the beauty of what redemption actually means. You see, in one sense, redemption is pretty tricky to grasp. It's a big concept. And yet, in another sense, it's really rather easy to understand. We use the language of redemption all the time. Like if you're a football fan, you kind of goalkeeper drops the ball over the line, makes a massive howler, and then later on in the game, makes a few point-blank saves and saves a couple of penalties, and his team win the game. You say, he redeemed himself. He made a massive mistake, and now he's redeemed himself. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. We've made a huge mistake, and then Jesus comes, and he redeems us. He's rescued us out of the mess with the room. Or we can redeem like a voucher. You go to certain supermarkets or whatever, you get a voucher. You can redeem it, you get more points. Like for us in our house, it's just the stage of life we're at. One of the most exciting things is when the local garden center magazine comes around. And uh, we kind of open it out. It's a big fancy posh one, fairly close to where we live. And uh, I don't care about the plants and stuff. Fast forward to the middle pages because that's where the vouchers are. When do I get my free breakfast this month? It's a little bit disappointing because this month it's a cream tea. Which is okay, but it's not the full cooked breakfast. And when I get there, 
I take my little voucher, and they're like, because it's fancy and posh, if they're listening, you're a great place. Um, drop your prices. Uh, it's like eight quid for a breakfast. I'm like, not for me. I give them my voucher. I've redeemed it because I want that. It's valuable to me. I give them something, and in exchange, it's exactly what God did for us. He wanted something valuable. That was you. That was me. And he said, here's my son in exchange for you. Or you can redeem a mortgage. If you're of a certain age and you've had 30 odd years or whatever, you've you've paid off your mortgage. It's redeemed. And if you're my generation, you think it's never going to happen. And you also think, well, it's all right for you. Yours was small. Mine's massive. But here's the thing. There's a day coming where that will be redeemed. Once you had a huge debt, and now you don't. It's been redeemed. It's been paid. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. Once we had a huge debt that we could never pay off. And then Jesus came and paid it all on the cross. And we are redeemed. Story of my favorite film, Shawshank Redemption. If you've never seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you. It's about a guy in prison and redemption, Shawshank Redemption. Oh, guess what? By the end of the film, he's redeemed. He's no longer in prison. That's the whole story. Once he was captive, now he's free. It's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. Once we were held up, we were captive, but now the great exchange has taken place and we are set free. And it's a picture that we see in the Bible. It's a biblical picture of the Exodus. And it relates back to Old Testament, Jewish people, the people of God, 1416 BC. They were held in captivity in Egypt. And God comes and he says to them, he says, you will be liberated from slavery because God's... Because if you kill this lamb and you eat it and you smear its blood upon your doorpost, when I send the angel, an angel to come and judge the Egyptians for their oppression of you, you will be set free because of the blood on your door. And it's exactly what Jesus has done when he comes to us and says, if you put your trust in me, if you have the blood of the lamb of God over your doorpost, then you will be free when I come round to judge. You will come out of slavery and into freedom. You will then have all the promises of God, all the inheritance I want to give you because you've been brought out of slavery by the blood of a slain lamb. That's why it's a really important biblical picture. And this is why we're able to know God's plans that we, because we've been redeemed. Before we were redeemed, we didn't. It was just a mystery. I don't really know what the point of the world is or where it all goes or how it all works out in the end. But God himself has gone and said, there is something that I want that is of such value to me. It's you, it's me, it's us, that I want to redeem you. I want to give something in exchange for you. God says, you are that valuable to me. I'm going to give my son in exchange for you. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a great price. And now we have a a purpose because we're part of the great big purpose, the great big story of God and what he is doing on the earth. It's why we give ourselves to this. It's why some of you guys have been here for hours and hours setting stuff up and you'll be here for later. You think, how much longer can I keep going for this? The reason why we do it is because we're part of this great big grand plan of purpose. And this is not going to stay the size it is because God has many more people to come into this fold. The reason we give ourselves to it, the reason a whole bunch of people are sat out there and missing this because they're looking after kids and serving our kids is because we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. The reason why we're here in, in this relative lack of comfort is because we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves we're part of the great big plan that God is bringing to unite everything in him under his lordship under his rule and his reign that's what we're about and when you get that it helps you make sense of this world you see when you know how something's going to work out it changes your experience dramatically so me and my eldest he's five years old he's getting into sport and taking the rugby and 
play rugby together and watch rugby and watch football as well. And he started to like watching football with me. Now, he's five, and so he just supports the red teams. All right, so any, any red team that are on, so we've been Liverpool, we've been Arsenal, we've been Man United over the last few weeks, just red teams. I mean, if they change kit the following week and they're wearing a different kit, no, he doesn't support them, just the red teams. So that's where we're at. So a few weeks ago in the uh, FA Cup semi-final, and it was uh, Manchester United, a red team, playing Everton, a blue team. And so, of course, he's supporting the red team, Manchester United. He doesn't even know what their name is particularly. And uh, I was supporting the blue team. But it was, we had, it was a tea time kickoff, for those who remember. And um, we were out for the day, and so I'd recorded it. But I'd promised him, you can watch the football with me later. Now, by the time we got back, tea time, bedtime, it was getting quite late. And, and so I was kind of thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I had promised him. Thankfully, I kind of remember the fact that he's five, and he's got no concept of time either. So we, we started at half time with Man United winning. And uh, every time I said, look out the window, we just fast-forwarded it. So 45 minutes became about 18 minutes. So he was like, wow, football's quick. Yeah, it is. You'd be amazed. <laughs> But the difference, I knew the result because I've got a phone, right? And it, and it kind of tells me these things. I knew the result, which is partly why I let him watch it because I knew that in the end, Man United won. I knew he'd be happy and he'd go to bed happy. If they'd lost, he probably wouldn't have been watching it. But it, I, the difference between me and him watching this game, with me knowing the result and him having no idea what was going to happen was huge. So if you remember, if you watched the game, Man United winning at halftime, so he was really very happy. The second half was all Everton. I mean, everything. They just bombarded Man United. They would just look like they were going to score so many chances. They then did score. They then had a penalty, which they then missed, and, and, it, and it was all very tense. And then Man United went the other end of the pitch, obviously, and scored in the last minute, and they were through into the final, much to my son's delight and my displeasure. But it was this moment of watching him where he who's five years old, who has no idea what's about to happen, versus me who does, he was getting so tense, so stressed about it. He was like standing in front of the TV going, no, 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 put it that way. And when they scored, he threw his, uh, the cushion down on the floor in absolute disgust and a little temper. I'm pretty sure he gets that from Han. And then, <laughs> and then he gets to the moment there was a penalty. Everton had this penalty, and he is now just beside himself. He's hiding behind the sofa, behind the cushion. He won't look. He's going, no! And I'm like, bud, just chill out. It'll be fine. He's like, you don't know! And I'm like, well, well uh, <laughs> no, but I've got a good feeling. Just watch the game. <laughs> and then the little rejoicing dance he did when Man United won. Now, it's just a silly example. But the difference, the ups and the downs, the tension, the dramatic moments, the bits where he was celebrating and then the bits where he was crying, the bits of anger and rage, the bits of confusion, the bit of just, what is happening? What's going to happen next? I can't watch versus me who just sits there knowing the end result. It's a silly example, but knowing how the end works itself out changes how we live right now. Knowing the dramatic plan of where we're going and what's going to happen means that all the tensions, all the ups and downs, all the, the little bits that are traumatic and confusing and unsettling and difficult and painful, I'm not saying that they're, they're not real, but knowing where it, we're going in the end, knowing how it all works out in the end means that those things are not pointless anymore. They all have meaning because they're all part of taking us on this journey of where we are going. And knowing that we're in this middle bit between God's kingly rule, the now and the not yet, and, the, and this other earthly bit, which is just not good, knowing that we exist in that space helps us to make sense of what's going on around us. There is a day coming when there'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more what ifs. Why did that happen? What's this about? That's where we're heading. We will be united in Christ, but we're not there yet. That changes the way we live now. And so many people ask questions, particularly when they're going through a difficult patch. They ask questions, why, 
Why, God? Why do you have to take your time? Now, why does he take his time getting there? Well, I, I don't know. I don't completely know, but I know what this question probably sounds like to God. Most parents have had this experience. You, we've had it many times. We tell the kids, hey, get in the car. We're off to see Granny and Granddad. And they're like, yay, and super excited. This journey we're going, we're going to Granny and Granddad's. It's going to be amazing. And uh, after about five minutes in the car, they're like, are we there yet? No. Five minutes later, Daddy, 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 what? Are we there yet? No. And the question comes, why not? I'm tired. You said we were going to Granny and Granddad's. Why are we not there yet? Why is it taking so long? And I'm like, oh, okay, sweetheart. She's three years old, my daughter. I'm like, sweetheart, it's, it's like 350 miles to Granny and Granddad's. We've been going for like five minutes. It's going to take a little bit longer. And because she's quite smart and she takes after her mum, she's like, why don't you go faster then? I'm like, mm-hmm. I mean, you could go faster. Mm-hmm. Like, you're dad and you can do anything. And you get where I'm going with this. You're the all-powerful father. You're the one who's in control of things. You're the one who's told us where we're going. So why don't you make us get there quicker? And so you try to explain to your three-year-old some of the laws of elementary physics, and she doesn't want to hear it. She's just like, you're just being mean to me. You said we could get there. Why can't we? And at a certain point, what do you say to her? Well, you say, sweetheart, listen, you're three years old, and you really don't understand physics. I'm really sorry, but all I can tell you is fasten your seatbelt and be quiet. Now, there are all sorts of sophisticated arguments and profound and detailed arguments about the nature of evil and the existence of God, and yet they all really boil down to this. Are we there yet? They all boil down to why not? Why are we not going faster? If this is real God, if you are who you say you are, why have you not got us there quicker? Why have you not sorted this out yet? And at the end of the day, what it really all boils down to is because I, because I can't understand something, even if God thinks it's like primary school physics, because I can't understand something, then maybe there's no God at all. But if God is God, then it makes sense that not everything makes sense. If we relate to him like my three-year-old relates to me, then it would make sense that not everything makes sense. In fact, if it did make sense, it wouldn't make sense. I don't know why everything bad happens. I don't know why everything, anything, in fact, happens the way it does. And I don't have an easy answer, and I really don't want to minimize your pain. And if you're going through a difficult moment right now, I'm not saying you're behaving like a three-year-old saying, Daddy, go faster. Just using it as an illustration. I don't know why. But this I know, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I don't understand why it's taking the time it does. I don't understand why the journey goes the way it does. But this I know, God is in control and he is in charge of everything. And that frees us to live accordingly because he's God and I'm not. Because he's in control and I'm not. Because he's working together for the good of those who love him, everything together. And because he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, I can trust him. I can live my life accordingly knowing that in the end it works out okay and if it's not worked out okay yet it's not yet the end to quote something from exotic marigold hotel whatever it was how do you live if you know that it's not about you it's about jesus how do you live if you know that it's all about him and his glory and that he's in control well i be honest i, I guess you kind of live like paul who wrote this letter you live a life of radical risk-taking complete obedience, God-glorifying, Jesus-centered, spirit-empowered holiness and mission. You say, hey, 
Lord, I know it's not about me. I know it's about you and your grand purposes and your plan. I know that this is the narrative. This is the story of what's going on. So I'm going to get my life to align be to yours and I'm going to follow it and I'm going to play my part in it. And there's going to be bumps in the road and there's going to be difficult moments where I'm going to put my seatbelt on and I'm going to pursue you with everything I've got. And I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to turn from to the left or to the right. I'm not going to look at things and say, well, God, that proves that you can't be who you say you are. Instead, I'm going to look at things and go, somehow, God, that proves that you are everything that you say you are and you're still in control. And I'm not going to be distracted by those things. And I'm not going to de- look at God and look at my circumstances and determine my love for God based on my circumstances. I'm going to determine my circumstances based on my love for God, just like Paul did. Because I understand that I've been bought with a great price. I've been redeemed. And I understand that this is a grand plan that is all working out for for his glory in the end. And I understand that he's controller. He's working it all together. And so I live accordingly. Just finish with this because this has implications for us as a church. As I started at the beginning by reminding us this is not about you and about me as individuals. It's about us corporately together. And so the outworking of this passage and this plan, yes, it has personal implications, but it's actually a corporate one for us. And the implications are quite profound because we suddenly recognize that we're part of this cosmic, grand, massive, broad-sweeping, amazing plan. The plan of God wasn't just to rescue me. The plan was to unite everything in heaven and everything under earth in Christ so that in him, in all things, he might have the supremacy. So that has implications for us. It has implications for our vision to the nations. This is why we're about serious about planting venues right across southeast London into the nations of the world, playing our part in establishing churches, planting churches to the nations of the world. This is not a vanity project. This is not about me and us and and about New Community Church's name. It's about the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. It's about the fact that we live in this time of the now and the not yet, when one day it'll all be united. And so we're playing our part in bringing that about now. We're playing our part in, in saying this is not how it's meant to be. This is how it's meant to be. And we're going to show that and display that in this middle bit right now to a watching world. It has implications. That's why we're doing what we're doing. It has implications for healing. I want to see more healing in our church. Not, again, for some vanity projects so we can tweet about it, so we can say, hey, look at us. We're seeing some amazing things. No, because we recognize we live in this now and the not yet. And when you understand that, you understand that we're not waiting to escape from here to there, where it's about these things being united. And so God, Jesus tells us, God tells us himself to pray, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, in the heavenly realms, there is no more sickness and no more pain. And so we live in this middle bit, and I want more of this bit in this bit. That should encourage us to pray with boldness and confidence. This is where it's coming. It's not like, well, it's just some magical miracle sign to point to Jesus. No, no, no. It's it's where we're heading. No more. There's not going to be any more need for healing there because everyone will be healed. Bring it on now. That's why we want to be serious about it. And it has implications on our vision for community as well, how we build community. We don't just... we, We want to be more than just a diverse community. I'm going to be preaching on this in two weeks' time, but we want to be more than just being diverse. We're about something bigger, actually. We're about reconciliation and restoration. Not just about having the same people in a room kind of who relate once a week on a Sunday and look at us, look at our diversity. No, no, we're about something bigger, about reconciliation and restoration. Because where we're heading is the gathering of everyone into one great bride, one great glorious assembly of the eternal saints. 
And that's where we're heading right now. We're called to unification. We're called to, to be one. We're called to unity. And, and that's what we're trying to express in the life of the church right here, right now. The church is a prophetic picture of the age to come, which is why it's about more than just having tick boxes and saying we've got people from this, 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 and this. It's about displaying as one, unified. Philippians 2 is all about humbling yourself. Don't look on your own things, look on the things of others. Ephesians 4, we'll get into a few weeks, it's all about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, celebrating our oneness, our one body, our one spirit, our one hope of calling, our one God and our one Father. Romans 15 is, is all about exactly the same kind of unity, the same kind of oneness. It talks in verse 5 of being of the same mind with one another, in one accord in Christ, with one voice, glorifying God. It's exactly the same that Jesus described in his prayer in John 17, that we may be one. And that's what we understand, that that's where we're heading. And so that's what we want to live right here, right now. God is driving us down this path because that's where it's all heading. And we want to display that right now. As I just said, the church is God's prophetic statement to a watching world of what life under his rule and his reign looks like and will look like. Are we perfect? No, because we're still in this world. Will we make everything right? No. Will we do a whole load of things wrong? Yes. Will we muck up at an individual level and do things and say things we shouldn't have done? Yes, of course. But what we're going to model is this unity and this oneness that rejects superficiality and says, I'm sorry, I repent, I ask for forgiveness, and we bring about rest, reconciliation and restoration with one another. Because that's what we're displaying. It's imperfect now, but there's a day coming when it would be perfectly displayed. But right now, we're displaying that, what it is in the now and the not yet. Our desire as a church is that that is who we are and who we're increasingly learning to be, sharing, loving, serving, burden-bearing with one another because we're called to be that. And ultimately, we're going to be unified in all eternity for all time.